How do you grow like a VC-backed company without taking on investors? Do you want to create a lifestyle business, a performance business, or an empire? How do you scale to an exit without losing your freedom? Those are the questions, and this show is the answer. What is up, everybody? This is Ryan here with The Scale Up Show. I have Jimmy Mackin on today, who is the CEO and co-founder of Curator. Absolutely amazing what this guy did. He he basically bootstrapped in seven years from zero to about 11 million. And he has a really unique go-to-market strategy that I've never heard anyone else really talk about. And it's leading with their why as a go-to-market strategy. So you're not going to want to miss this truly unique. He's an amazing speaker and storyteller. Check it out. Welcome, everybody, to The Scale Up Show. This is your host, Ryan Staley, and I have a very special guest with me today. I have Jimmy Mackin. Jimmy is the founder and CEO of Curator and has grown over to $10 million in ARR. It's been featured in Forbes, Huffington Post, USA Today, Amex Open Forum. He also has a podcast, another fellow podcaster called Hashtag The Water Cooler, and co-authored Exactly What to Say for Real Estate Agents. Jimmy, welcome. Happy to have you on the show, man. Well, I appreciate you inviting me on, Ryan. Uh, I'm looking forward to diving into everything SaaS, my friend. Hopefully, give some value to your audience today. Yeah, I'm sure you will, man. I can tell just by talking to you in advance. So it was great getting to know you a little bit. Uh, I'm jealous of, of your sports heritage. For those of you who don't know, <laughs> Jimmy lives in the Boston area. So he's had the fortunes of being through one of the greatest sports dynasties ever. And it just seems like the hits keep on coming for the Boston. So That's it. Absolutely. A <laughs> little, little jealousy there for me because I'm out of Chicago, which, as you know, we've had some good runs. We've had some rough runs. But anyways, so, so Jimmy, why don't we kick off and go through like a really quick revenue rundown, man? So just so everybody has some context in terms of where you're at in the journey so then they can frame it up. So where are you at in terms of your ARR? I know I said in the intro, but um, I assume you might be further past that. Maybe not. Where are you guys at? Yeah, sure. Sure. Well, you mentioned in the intro, we're north of 10 million right now. I think we're right around a little shy of 11 million in ARR today. Um, I expect us, you know, we're sort of halfway through the year. Uh, I expect us to sort of probably in that 11.5 to 12 million by the end of this year. Uh, for, for context for your audience, um, you know, we're probably growing at 20%, 25% annually uh, over nice. the last couple of years. Awesome, man. Awesome growth. What's your, so what's your primary go-to-market strategy? Well, I think, you know, it's funny you ask that. I think uh, for us, we've always been a company that has really ingrained ourselves with our audience. And we had this, this philosophy, a curator, which is build the audience before you need it. Mm. And, and what we mean by that is we focus on content marketing as a primary vehicle for us to acquire customers. Now, that comes in every form and fashion. It comes, as you mentioned earlier, in the form of a podcast, in the form of a book, in the form of you know uh, hosting and, and managing Facebook groups. It comes in the form of writing blogs. It comes in the form of just being active on social media, on Instagram and Twitter. But we primarily have focused on leading with the uh, ideas and our beliefs and our worldviews as a as a mechanism to sort of attract people to uh, who we are before we before we sell them what we actually offer, and that has been that has been wildly effective for us as a company because, frankly, uh, it, it, the longer you're in business, the more likely it is that the thing that you're offering changes. And so, if you're always selling just the what and, and whatever it is you're offering, um, you know that can kind of come in and out of fashion. And people ultimately are really trying to trying to get behind businesses who who share the same worldviews, if you will. 
I love that, man. We're definitely going to dig deeper on that because big fan of Simon Sinek. And then at the same time, you know, start with why. And then at the same time, like, <laughs> I think some of the best, like single best conversations I've ever had um, in my sales background have been when I started with my kind of why and my, my reasons versus like the what. So I love that mm-hmm. you're doing that, man. We definitely got to dig deeper into that. How big is your team? We have now roughly a little less than 60 people that work at Curator. Okay, nice. Um, uh, we're a remote organization. We've been a remote organization since our founding, almost 10 years ago now. Uh, and uh, we did open offices for a period of time pre-COVID, pre-pandemic. And then, uh, and then we, uh, which is great, and it was an awesome experience. Uh, but since the pandemic, we closed both those offices and went back to being fully remote. And uh, we're distributed across not only the US, but also internationally now. Wait, let me make sure I heard you right. Did you say six people? No, 60. Okay. I was going to be like, whoa, six. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Not, 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 not six. Okay. Uh, we would become, we, we, we would become the world's most efficient SaaS company if we were doing 10 plus million ARR with uh, six people. Uh, that's uh, above my pay grade. <laughs> yeah. No, dude, there is, um, this is wild. Well, well there's a, a company that I interviewed and they were seven people close to nine figures in revenue. It was insane. Wow. So, yeah. Um, Kudos okay. to them. So walk us through your solution. What exactly and I, I what exactly does Curator do and and how does it work? And how does it serve people? Yeah, we're 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 a uh, you know marketing solution which uh, effectively is software and services. Uh, we provide top real estate agents with the people, the plan, and the platform to get their marketing done right. So if you think about sort of the value chain for Curator, we sit we should sit solely on how do we help our customers get more customers? So we help them with their digital marketing. We help them with their Facebook advertising, Google, email, content. And we sort of manage their, their marketing tech stack, if you will. So their website, their email marketing tools. And then we integrate with some of the best-in-class CRM providers in our space. Uh, so someone comes to Curator, just for context, someone comes to Curator because in an industry where there are 1.5 million realtors, um, how they present themselves, how they market themselves, how they how they communicate their value to the world is how they get customers. So they hire us because they want they want to do a better job at that, which is uh, which is you know what we specialize in. So you know what our brand promises is really around helping them get their marketing done right so that they can grow their businesses. Love that. I, I mean, I could see a massive need for that too, especially like. By nature, real estate agents are very, very heavy salespeople. So I could see there being mm-hmm. some of the best salespeople I've met in the world are the worst marketers and vice versa. So um, I think there's a massive need there. What about like, are you bootstrapped or funded or how did you get to that, that, you know, 10, 11 million dollars in seven ish years? Yeah, you know, people always ask ask me that question uh, if we're if we've raised money or if we've uh, if we've uh, bootstrapped and and my answer is always if someone would have given us any money we would have taken it. Uh, <laughs> but the reality the reality was is no one would give us money when we started this company. Uh, so I co-founded the company with uh, my uh, partner in crime Chris Smith uh, and uh, Andrew Leaf. And uh, Chris, who um, is uh, author of uh, two, or not, geez, now four, excuse me, best-selling books. Uh, he just released, uh, I, I think, one of the best, if not the best, book on lead conversion called The Conversion Code. 
Um, and when we started this business, it was really, um, you know, it was out of a necessity for us to uh, try to put into practice the ideas that we were teaching. Uh, you know, Chris and I are, in a lot of ways, we are practitioners. Um, Andrew brought the technology component. He brought um, the that sort of outsider's perspective, which I think was really helpful, especially in the early phases for us. Um, and Chris and I were really meant to be sort of the face of the brand. Uh, Chris was more of the sales guy, uh, certainly had a great brand already. I was more back of house customer service. And so the three of us, we three of us sort of worked together to, to build this company up into the point where it became a, you know, a real thing. Um, but we did bootstrap this organization. We started the company, I think $1,500 cash is what we did. And, and our customers were our investors from day one. That's awesome, man. Props to you. That's, that's hard. And a lot of respect for doing that. Some people say thinking money is cheating, right? And it all depends on which way you look at it. There's value in doing that, but to be able to to bootstrap to you know eight figures over eight figures, which you know I, I just looked at the math on this, and I think it's less than one percent make it to that eight figure mark. So to mm. to add on the fact that you bootstrapped it, but you also did it in seven years, I think it's absolutely amazing, man. So props to you and, and your your co founders making that happen. Yeah, taking money is not cheating. Uh, it just might be dumb, and I think that's the. I, I think the the reality is is that when you're early in your career uh, or in your journey, you think of capital as a solution to all of your problems. And in fact, constraints provide, in a lot of ways, a much better vehicle for you to find success in this industry. And what I mean by that is. Uh, there are plenty of times during curator's history where we would just throw money at certain projects or certain ideas or certain you know things that were interesting to us that really provided no value to our customers. They were just things that we wanted to do. Uh, but you know, Peter Drucker in his in his seminal book, The Effective Executive, talks about the idea of how as entrepreneurs and as leaders, we have to choose what is the right thing to do, not the thing that we want to do, which is oftentimes very different. And so in the case of raising capital, capital is just a tool. That's all it is. And you should only raise capital when you feel like you absolutely need it to be able to execute against the strategy you set forth. In the absence of having a clear strategy or in the absence of being able to have a plan around using that capital, then effectively you're just giving your money, you're just basically giving away part of your business uh, because you're insecure, because you're thinking that you need to figure this stuff, like we need money to figure it out. Very rarely do you need money to figure out a problem. Let's be clear about that, Ryan. Like very rarely, do you, like we, we, most people who I meet, especially in SaaS, we are not building electric cars, right? We're not, we're not building rockets. We don't really, there are not that many capital intensive businesses. If you've got a great idea and, and there's a market for it, your customers can fund you know, your journey. Um, and so there are pros and cons to it, but I, I think, I think a lot of people who are listening right now who listen to this podcast, maybe early in the journey, I, I think we need to stop with the fetish around raising capital. Cause frankly, it's, 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 it's a, the wrong solution to a lot of people's problems. And people tend to, you know, worship at this sort of this ideal world where if I raise capital, it solves all my problems. It doesn't. You know, it really doesn't. Um, and so there are benefits of being bootstrapped other than just owning, you know, the business and not having to, you know, not having to be, uh, call it uh, responsible or, or accountable to outsiders. Uh, but there's also one other benefit, which people don't talk about, Ryan, which is it forces you to know how to run a good business. 
And if you don't have that as a force function, you can develop some really bad habits early in your career. Totally agree with you on that. I mean, I went through two funding cycles myself. Uh, I was a VP of sales before and <clears throat> we went, through, it was private equity, it wasn't venture capital. So, but what I, w- what I would tell you is that it, it changed the entire cultural dynamic of the company when we took it mm-hmm. on. And basically what you're saying is <clears throat> um, they wanted to grow fast, right? So they kept pumping capital in and the processes weren't designed to keep up with that growth rate. So basically, we started to scale shit, right? And mm-hmm. people like customers were angry. Employees didn't want to work there anymore. And so yeah. it just exasperated everything. And so like that's one of the downsides that people don't talk to as well. There's also called like the valley of death that you hit, you know, kind of at the 10 million mark, the 25 to 30, 50 million mark that a lot of ha- yeah. happens because people try and grow too fast with, with capital. So... Yeah, the the worst the worst thing I've seen when it comes to raising. Listen, I think it makes a ton of sense to raise capital when it's incredibly cheap, um, and you don't have to give away much of your company uh, to be able to have a little bit of a cushion. Like that all makes sense, but make no mistake about it: when you raise capital, you are making a decision that you are either going to sell the business right and or go public. There really isn't a third option there. Um, if you know when someone's giving you money, they're expecting a return on their capital, and so that puts unnecessary pressure on an organization that is largely immature and hasn't haven't hasn't had the opportunity to kind of figure out what it is to that they're actually doing, and so that that becomes it becomes this uh, this sort of north star for the organization that if you're not ready for it. It can be destructive, as you just mentioned. And so, you know, this is this this brings up an interesting point, Ryan, which I think is good for your audience to to maybe um, to maybe think about, which is, you know, a lot of people in our industry in SaaS, they they tend to focus on the growth metrics like they there becomes meetings about growth metrics. Um, what's going to be our ARPU? What's going to be our NRR? What's going to be our churn rate? How do we increase our, you know, how do we increase our monthly bookings? And like all of these metrics matter. They do matter. But when you, they become the focal point, you lose sight of the customer, the person who's actually paying the bill. And so what, I'm, what I've learned in my experience, because every time that I've set these financial metrics, what I've learned is that uh, it can sometimes devalue or it can sometimes make, uh, lead us to making dumb decisions around like what we're trying to do as an organization. And it mo- removes that sort of like, connection we have with our customers. And the reality is like if you just are absolutely obsessed over delivering value to your customers, whatever that whatever the definition is for you, and then you figure out the financial model that can support that offering, that's a lot more constructive when it comes to planning your goals than just focusing in on increasing your ARPU by 13% next quarter. Because then everyone becomes a financially driven company, which is for what purpose? Right, like why it does it like it, it, it becomes this situation where everything becomes about the metrics, which is just becomes a shitty place to work. Like you lose the soul of the organization. Um, and considering the fact that like ninety nine point nine percent of the people who listen to this podcast aren't going to sell their company for a hundred million dollars or more, maybe we should try to enjoy the journey a little bit more through this process, as opposed to like just until when we actually sell it for a couple hundred million dollars. <laughs> yeah. 
it's a good way to look at it, man. So, so let's let's talk about your learning. So, what what was the number one thing that you did that helped you grow from one million to three million in, in AR? Yeah, one million to three million. Um, I think it's Stephen Covey that said the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And I think for Curator, the main thing for us was we were riding we were riding an existing wave, which was Facebook at the time. Facebook advertising, you know, real, the real estate advertising industry is uh, some estimated to be around a nineteen billion dollar TAM. And at the time, what was happening was people were looking to explore alternative ways of spending that ad dollars on platforms that were new and up and coming. They were moving from traditional media, TV, uh, uh, print, uh, radio to, to online, Google, Facebook, et cetera at the time. And so we were one of the early adopters of the Facebook advertising platform and we were using it as a way and a means to help our customers reach a new, reach their existing audience in sort of a new fashion. And so this is, a, this is an incredibly important lesson that I didn't realize until maybe like three years ago, which is, uh, and Scott Galloway, Professor Scott Galloway talks a lot about this. He says, it is market performance always trumps individual business strategy. And what he means by it is that if there is a natural tendency where everything is moving in one direction, you know, it's like, just get a surfboard and catch that wave. Stop worrying about like, is it the right surfboard or is it the right land? Like, no, it's like if there's everyone was moving their ad dollars to Facebook, we were already seeing it. We just caught that wave. So much of our early success was very much by the, by accident. It wasn't, it wasn't a, at the time we didn't really know why we were doing so well in that space, but it would, what it really came back down to when we look back and reflect on it is that the team did a really good job at, embracing this, you know, tsunami that was Facebook at the time and, and, and helping our clients, you know, advertise and market their business through that channel. Uh, so that was one of the, I think one of the early factors that helped us drive success was the fact that we just caught it. We call it a great wave. So that's great. So then what about the next phase, man? Cause like, these are, these are the dips that people have. Like what about 3 million to 10 million? Like what was the biggest learning you had from growing from 3 million to 10 million in a bootstrap model? Yeah. You know, the, the big, the big thing and the big thing that I've learned scaling the organization is the process is not the product. And what I mean by that is that when you're a CEO or you're a, you're a leader with an organization, everybody around you is going to be telling you, Oh, you know, we got to slow things down. We got to put, to put together SOPs. We got to have meetings about meetings. We got to make sure there's documentation, all, all this stuff. That's all fine, right? I'm not going to rail against that. We have a curator. uh, We have a fantastic COO, Tim Harvey, uh, comes with an incredible uh, pedigree in the military, and he's been able to bring a lot of order to the chaos that was curator. So I would be remiss if I didn't say that uh, operational execution is absolutely essential. And when your processes are not going to enable that operational execution, then there's going to be a fundamental problem. Mm-hmm. But what happens is the the downside of 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 organization is that you lose uh, you lose a little bit of that edge that you started with, that little bit of curiosity that you started with, that little bit of well, how can we do better? And I ha- and I have to remind our team constantly, Ryan, that you know the the thing that is curator today, the thing that we built. 
like it was just a bunch of people making decisions at, at a given time that led to us to where we are today. So it isn't as if this thing is rigid, it's fluid, it's flexible. We can, we can, we can change it. It doesn't, it isn't something that's set in stone. There are no sacred cows. So what has allowed us to scale the organization is two things. First and foremost, understanding that my job as CEO is to focus on the future. My job is to be the most ambitious person in the organization. My job is to to help facilitate innovation. There's a saying we have at Curator, which is when you innovate, you grow. When you don't, you don't. So I am absolutely obsessed with new ways in which we can innovate on behalf of our customers. At the same time, Tim, our COO, and now our new CTO, Allner, their job is, is execution. And so having that, having that distinction at the, at the kind of highest level within your organization between whose job it is to innovate and whose job it is to think about the future and then whose job it is to execute, having that sort of divide and conquer mentality, but still working together collaboratively really well is essential as you scale an organization because one of two things will happen. Other, if left unchecked, I would have a trail of half-baked ideas that never really <laughs> saw the, the light of day or, you know, left unchecked, Tim would be sort of like executing three years ago's playbook, right? So I've had to, in a lot of ways, become more operationally conscious and he's had to become a lot more sort of, uh, this is not even a, innovationally, is that even a word? Like He's had to become more I think uh, accepting of the risks that's involved in the chaos. He's been he's embraced the chaos. I've embraced the process. I think is the best way to say it. Uh, so that's really helped us as an organization. So if you got to do both jobs, God bless you, because that it is not easy. Yeah, um, I, that that was uh, that's kind of me right now, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm running both sides of it. So. Just where I'm at in terms of my journey, right? <clears throat> so I'm only about two years in and things are changing in that structure. But it was funny. I had the biggest eye opener. It was about a year ago when I was like, mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, I just, I get all these ideas in my head. I just got to write them out in terms of this was just like creating traffic, which I'm sure you'll appreciate, right? Creating, you know, leads and demand gen. And so I wrote down all the things I was focused on and there was like 12 different ways. And I'm like, I'm mm-hmm. not like a hundred million dollar company. Like I need like one way that works well. I don't need like 12 mm-hmm. different ways at the stage, but in my head, that was a hamster wheel that was running around. And so then that like helped me kind of, you know, basically bifurcate, like trying to do everything, doing the creative side and the process side and the vision, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you said right there. And awesome that you have, you know, the visionary aspect and then the integrator aspect so that, they could kind of marry together and you can come up with the big ideas and they keep you in check on whether or not those are, you know, executable. Right. So I love that. Yeah. And I, I think there's a book about this um, called rocket fuel. Cause I, I didn't even know this book existed. I wish I read it many years ago, but I think one of the, if I'm not mistaken, one of the core concepts in that book is they talk about the idea of the visionary and the, and the person who's executing and blending. And, and, and I, I think the word visionary is a, is a loaded term. I am certainly not a visionary. Um, I think for me, I am just curious uh, and I am, always looking for a better way. I'm always looking for a way to improve things. I'm always asking what if I, I, I think there's, I'm, I'm very much, I think this is a, this is a quality that you can lose over time to be clear for those of you who are maybe three or five years in your journey. I think, um, 
one of the things that people tend to do in our space, Ryan, is they become, I think this is sort of a death knell, right? Is like they become risk adverse um, and they, they become afraid of failure. And I know people have said this a thousand times, but what, what they don't really speak about, or I haven't heard maybe we'll talk about, frankly, is uh, there's this preservation mindset that kicks into effect once you get a little bit of revenue. And so you're afraid of losing the revenue because you've worked so hard to generate it. And that fear of losing the revenue is in some ways confirmation that you're going to lose it because you now have stopped be, you stop uh, becoming willing to sort of push yourself. Um, and so the people that I admire, the entrepreneurs that I admire are the ones who are, who have a very healthy appetite for risk um, because that's what's required to build, you know, a great organization is you've got to be willing to, to, you've got to be willing to swing and you've got to be willing to put some meaningful weight behind something. Otherwise, you know, you're just sort of buying your time here before you become irrelevant. So, well, let me ask you this. What is your single biggest challenge with growing right now? Our single biggest challenge with growing is uh, there's, not, there's, not actually, there's not actually one particular challenge that, that we are facing. It's more of a, I think it's more of a, a, a realization around our business model itself. So for those of you who are in SaaS right now, who are listening to this, um, you've maybe read or, or, or uh, followed people like Jason Lemkin, uh, founder of Saster. Um, and he talks a lot about companies like um, you know, uh, Squarespace and Wix. I'm just talking about the, the marketing space um, who have you know, built these, you know, gone public, built these billion dollar organizations. He talks a lot about you know, companies he's invested in like Algolia or, uh, or my buddies over there, ProfitWell, they just got acquired for $200 million, which is fantastic. You know, shout out to Patrick and the whole team over there. Uh, it's great to see a Boston-based company get out there and, and get a big win. Um, when, you, when you study these companies, what you tend to see is um, there is a fundamental difference between the product and the business model. And this is, this is not obvious for it wasn't obvious for me. Maybe I'm the only idiot out there who didn't understand this. But for me, I never really looked at them as two different things. I looked at the product and the offering and the business model as one kind of thing, one business. And what it took me a long time to realize that the product and the business model are th- two separate things in which you can innovate on top of. And someone who I admire tremendously in our space is a gentleman by the name of Rich Barton. He's a founder of, of Zillow. And I remember hearing him and some of his co-founders, I'm not sure who the quote was, might be Spencer Raskoff, one of the other co-founders. They said, we relentlessly innovated on the product and we relentlessly innovated on the model. And so one of our biggest challenges is we have a traditional, to answer your question, we have a traditional SaaS model, which is people subscribe uh, for our technology platform. And then we layer on additional services for Mm -hmm. for customers based on their needs. The challenge that we have is that there isn't any inherent built-in net revenue retention, right? We have expansion revenue, but there isn't any built-in net revenue retention. So we can't really add seats. We don't charge for like website visits or the size of their database. Um, So net revenue retention doesn't really exist within the business itself. And so therefore, the only way for us to grow is to sell more than we churn or downgrade or sell and upgrade more than we churn and downgrade. You with me on this, right? Mm-hmm, so like, yeah. that's the only way which we can grow. And so what that means is you constantly have the headwind that comes along with churn. And churn is such a 
you know, we're, we sell the small businesses. Churn's a real issue, right? People um, have different needs. They're, they, they're kind of going in and out of business. Okay, you know, there's no, there's no predictability in real estate. Real estate's such an incredibly difficult job that one month you can have an epic month and you can have a bad quarter and then be almost out of business. It's a very tough job that people don't appreciate. And so for us, one of the biggest challenges that we have and what we are actively working on is ways in which we can build inherent net revenue retention into the business model that make sure that the value is consistent with the how much we charge for our premium. And this is important because I know many companies who have fucked this up really bad where they 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 attend a SASTER workshop and then they decide that we're going our price is going to be we're going to start doing A and B and they quickly piss off their early customers because they just start charging them so much money to drive up some short-term metric. And guess what? Everyone's got a competitor. And so I've been on the I've been on the receiving end of a lot of those experiences where I've I've, I've bought products from fast-growing SaaS companies and what started off early as fair pricing quickly became every single thing we did it just pushed the price up and because we we're a mid-sized company small to mid-sized company like we had no other choice but to move on whereas they would have kept us happy and probably been very profitable with us if they realized that not everything needs to be charged for and that the the value price the value based pricing is really essential not just feature based pricing because that's really not what um what uh, most companies do well. So for us, the biggest growth challenge, to answer your question directly, is making sure that the business model has built-in NRR so that we can continue to invest in the core product and then experience the upside of that growth from the, the existing customers. Just organically, yeah. Snowflake obviously yeah. does a really good job of that. <clears throat> My buddy works over at Amazon Web Services. He's like, he's like, dude, you could literally like... <laughs> He's like, you could, you could literally not work for like the entire year and hit like 85, 90% of your quota. Cause it just organically grows and people love it. And there's not, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Um, so well, I, they, 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 they've, they've done something to don't jump in, but just to point something up, they've done something where the value of the service is consistent with the price in which you charge so that in the sense that Amazon web services, it's obvious when you're <coughs> using it more, you're paying more. But the assumption is when you're using it more, you're getting more value out of it. And that's the part that people miss is they charge more without any consideration to the value proposition. And as a result of it, you know, the product becomes, um, it becomes expensive and then people shop them and they churn. So yeah, the NRR is definitely something that is we're actively looking at. It's one of the it's one of the many, many challenges that you're facing, but it's a, it's a fun problem to solve. And we're looking forward to cr- trying to crack that code. Good feedback, man. I, we're just about up on time, but I do want to get one of the things that we started off with is like, how do you have a go-to-market? How do you use your why as a go-to-market strategy? I'd love you to like unpack that in a couple of minutes, which might not be able to do, but I think that's absolutely sure. amazing that you're leveraging that. would love to hear how is a company yeah, executed. It's... Um, it's, you know, I think for us, um, you know, obviously I'm familiar with Simon's work. Um, and I think a lot, for a lot of founders might be able to relate to this, Ryan. Uh, the, I think a lot of founders have a chip on their shoulders when they start their companies because they are trying to prove to themselves that they can do it. And I think if we're all being honest with ourselves right now, we, we, we toggle between 
feeling supremely confident that we're going to change the world to, um, holy shit, this thing's going to implode. And I really hope no one sees how, how, you know, how completely disorganized I really am. Um, and so I think for me, the, the why has evolved for us where the why that I have today is, is about the, is really about the work. And I, what I mean by this is, is finding joy in the work itself. Um, in the sense that, um, there's a certain amount of pride that we take a curator in just doing really good work and challenging ourselves to do really good work. And yes, we, we are, we are a company that is, is a for-profit company. And yes, we have incredible ambitions to build a, a phenomenal organization, an industry changing organization. Um, but for us, it's about the work and, and there needs to be a certain level of satisfaction and contentment that you have. Uh, are feeling content with the fact that you just do good work. And so our industry as a whole is, is driven by uh, a lot of companies in our space that are very talented entrepreneurs and they're very, they're very good at what they do. But the work itself is not something that I would look at and say, oh, well, that's, 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 that's what we aspire to be. It's, it's sort of the, the watered down version of, of what is really possible. And so for us, we just believe that you have to fall in love with the job. You have to fall in love with the work. You have to fall in love with the fact that you're taking pride in what you're doing. And, and so my why for, for a lot of what we've been doing lately is, is, is driven a lot by that. And it's also driven by, it's driven by um, the team. You know, we got an incredible team of people, a curator who have worked so hard to help build this organization, who are really committed. And so as a CEO, I think there are, this is how I define my job. When I became CEO, I actually look, Google, like, what is a CEO supposed to do? Right. Cause I, I, time, I didn't know I've been a CEO now for two and a half, three years. And before that I was just a, just a co-founder. And so when I became CEO at Google, what is it, what is a CEO supposed to do? Write a few books on it, listen to a bunch of podcasts, try to immerse myself in it. And I think that the job can be boiled down to a few key activities. The first is beyond vision and mission. Your job is strategy. What's the plan, right? You got all these people working for you. What's the plan? The second is people. Do you have the right people on the team? Are they are they in the right position? You know, are they actually you set up to succeed? Uh, resources. This is talking about the the environment. Uh, do they have the right environment? Is the right processes in place? Do they have enough capital? Um, so strategy, resources, strategy, people, resources, and the last is culture. And this is where your job is to build an organization that is uh, bigger than just yourself. And it stands for something. And there's values that dri- drive your organization. And so for me, the why for Curator has really been, lately has been around, we are all working incredibly hard. And so what's driving me right now is is trying to create a, a an amazing place to work where people love being here. Um, and that's challenging in a remote environment. Um and so we do so many things as a curator to try to solve this problem uh, and, and try to introduce smart policies to get people to, start, to surround this problem. But I'll tell you right now, for anyone who's listening, this whatever you're imagining for how long it's going to take is going to be three times longer. And it, it, so like whatever, whatever you've told yourself, it just times it by three, maybe even five. Okay. So, that, so just accept that to be a reality. But your founder, so you probably will ignore my advice, but it's true. Um, but accept that every reality. Okay. The next thing is like, you can't be playing this entire game just for the last quarter. You know, you've got to figure out a way to create an environment. People love to come to work for you because guess what? 
if they love working for you and they love being a part of the company, then the likelihood of achieving that outcome goes up exponentially. If they don't, if they're just sprinting, you're going to burn them out and then you're going to bring in a next batch and you're going to burn them out. And then you're never going to get to the point where you've got really talented people who are willing to stick around and be on this journey with you. So that that's a lot of the reason why you know we do what we do, just the love of the work and the love of the people. It's awesome, man. Great way to end the, end the uh, show. So where can people find you? Where can they find more about Curator? Because uh, it was awesome having you on today. I love your analogies, your stories. Absolutely crushed it. So uh, great job to you, man. But where can people find you? Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for the love, Ryan. Uh, and, and, and congratulations on, on, on your podcast. And, you know, keep doing, keep, keep doing the good work. I think enough, uh, you know, the more advice and the more guidance we can get from fellow entrepreneurs, and the more that we can share our stories, I think the better. Um, I, I, the best place to follow me is I'm on Twitter at Jimmy Mackin. I'm really active on Twitter. I share a lot of advice about growth and, and what it's like to, you know, market your business. So on Twitter, I'm obviously on Instagram as well at Jimmy Mackin. J-I-M-M-Y-M-A-C-K-I-N on Instagram and on Twitter. Those are definitely the best places to stay connected with me if you're if you're looking to um, you know follow me. And then of course, if you if you have questions or you're uh, you're a SaaS founder right now and you're just looking for some general advice, I'm always happy to pay it forward. I'm very grateful to have some amazing mentors in my life, people like uh, Tom Ferry uh, who have uh, helped me. I've ha- I've had amazing partners like my my boy Chris Smith. Uh, who's been an incredible uh, partner to me. I've had great collaborators and people that I respect tremendously. Like you mentioned Phil M. Jones earlier, my boy, Phil M. Jones. So uh, I'm, anything I can do to pay it forward, I, I'm, I'm happy to do so. Um, you know, this is a tough business. It's a lonely business. And uh, you know, anything I can do to help your audience, I'm happy to do so, Ryan. So appreciate you having me on the pod. Awesome, man. Thanks, Jimmy. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for checking out The Scale Up Show. My mission in life is to help founders and revenue leaders avoid all the pain and suffering in revenue growth so they can flip it and create a life of their own design. So if you enjoyed this show, please like, review, share it on social, and more importantly, just share it with a friend. Share it with someone that you think could learn and benefit from what you heard on today. But the more we get the message out, the more people we could help, the bigger the impact we make, and the bigger the community gets, which helps everybody. So once again, thank you for being a loyal listener. I appreciate you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.